Luke 19, verses 45 through 48. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling, saying to them, It is written, And my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. And they could not find anything that they might do, for all the people were hanging on to every word that he said. Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 19. On the next day, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. Seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den? The chief priests and scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him. For they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. When evening came, they would go out of the city. Turn to Matthew chapter 21. We'll read verses 12 through 19. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David, they became indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise for yourself. And he left them, left them and went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. Now in the morning when he was returning to the city, he became hungry. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, no longer shall there ever be any fruit from you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank You for this time that You have extended to us so graciously to spend time in Your Word together corporately studying it and contemplating, considering it. I pray, Lord, that this contemplation would have an impact on our hearts. That we would examine our hearts and souls as a result of this time of study. Lord, we pray that You would speak to us through Your Word and transform us, change us. Thank You that You have the power to cleanse the most wicked sinner and by Your grace to save them and grant eternal life. Were it not so, none of us would have any hope. Thankful for Your marvelous grace operative in and through the life of Jesus Christ and for the salvation that He has secured. 
May we take warning from the text before us. May we be warned from the wrath to come. And may we, instead of fleeing from You, flee to You. And find in Jesus our anchor of our souls and a refuge in time of need. We pray this in His name. Amen. So we come to the day following the triumphal and tearful entry into Jerusalem. We're told that at the end of that day, his riding in to Jerusalem on a donkey, that he retired to Bethany for the night. And so here where we pick up on the narrative is on the second day of the Passion Week. It's most likely Monday. And Jesus arises with his disciples with the intention of traveling back into Jerusalem to go back to the temple for some much-needed spring cleaning. But on his way, we're told that he was hungry. And so, in the distance, this leads Jesus to a tree. In a sermon entitled, The Tree and the Temple, I'd like to walk through this text with you this morning by remembering two activities, two activities which Jesus completed on this Monday of his Passion Week. We're only a couple of days away from Jesus' meeting with the cross. And here on this Monday, there are a couple of activities that communicate to us both cursing and blessing, destruction and healing, judgment and salvation. And that sounds just like the Gospel, doesn't it? There's some bad news to hear, but there's some wonderful blessed news to hear as well. I'm going to walk through this with two points. The first is tree removal, and the second is temple renovation. Very, very simple this morning. Tree removal, and then we'll secondly look at temple renovation. First of all, let's talk about tree removal. We come across a case of false advertising. This text begins with another incredible expression of the humanity of Jesus Christ. We're told at the outset of this journey into Jerusalem that Jesus becomes what? Hungry. That Jesus becomes hungry. What another wonderful highlighting of the condescension that Jesus underwent when He came to earth and took on flesh and dwelt among us. As a man who had full humanity, Jesus hungered. And in this moment of hunger, He spots on the horizon a fig tree. And He comes to it in order to take a fig off of it. Now, it wasn't uncommon for fig trees to be spotted along roads of travel, and the fruit that were on these trees were considered fair game for any traveler that was walking along the road. But as Jesus approaches this tree, which is full of leaves, he finds that it's barren of any fruit. Now, Mark tells us, well, it wasn't the season for figs. So we have to ask the question, why did Jesus even look for figs? If it wasn't even seasoned for figs, why was he looking for them? I mean, no one would go out into a cornfield right about now and look for an ear of corn, right? So why is Jesus going up to a fig tree when it's not the season for figs, looking for figs? And then what prompts the response that he makes as well? Well, we get a little bit of insight from several agriculturalists. And the, um, this is a statement from Edersheim, who's quoting from one of them. It's a well-known fact that in Palestine, the fruit appears before the leaves. And that this fig tree, whether from its exposure or soil, 
is evident from the fact that it was in leaf, which is quite unusual all that season on the Mount of Olives. Here's the point. Yeah, it wasn't season for figs, but it wasn't season for foliage either. <laughs> why was this tree, why did this tree call to Jesus' attention? Because this tree, among all the trees, was lush with green leaves. And everyone knew that the leaves followed the fruit in fig trees. So if this tree is already covered in leaves, then what must that indicate? It must also have fruit on its branches. How could this be? Was it possible that maybe you had some fruit from the previous season and the tree just kind of weathered through with them? Or was it possible that this tree just had some extra vitality and grew up sooner than all the rest of the trees? Maybe it was the first one to come to full foliage and produce fruit. Yeah, this fig tree, while it boasted great things by its coat of many leaves, so abundant in promise, Jesus finds to be utterly fruitless. Have you ever been disappointed by false advertising? Have you ever been there before? One of my favorite examples driving down the road, I'm sure maybe you've come across one of these yourself, is a semi-truck going by, and I look over, and there is the most massive cheeseburger I've ever seen in my, in my life. Jack in the box, across the top, big sign, actual size. Whoa! Asterisk underneath, lower, little small writing, not actual size. Now, at least Jack in the Box has the decency to let us in on their false advertising scheme. Here we have no asterisk attached to this tree. This tree had the look of fruitfulness, but in reality was completely barren. It was a tree of unfulfilled promise, a case of false advertising. This leads us to a curse of eternal ramifications. This leads us to a curse of eternal ramifications. What makes this scenario so interesting is that it is the only miracle, to my knowledge, in which Jesus does something destructive. Jesus unleashes power to bring destruction here. He curses the fig tree. He says, no longer into the ages. I mean, literally it reads, into eternity there will be no more fruit coming from you. Another gospel writer says, into eternity, there will be no one who eats ever from you. Now, this miracle stands alone in the gospels as a miracle of destruction. And as a result, there have been some who have struggled with Jesus' actions here. Its uniqueness has led to some interesting objections. I mean, especially with Mark's statement again that it wasn't even time for figs. It wasn't the season for figs. Why does Jesus become so upset? On March 6, 1923, a lecture was presented at the Battersea Town Hall under the auspices of the South London branch of the National Secular Society in England by a man by the name of Bertrand Russell. The title of his speech was, Why I Am Not a Christian. Now, you can find it, by the way, for free if you do a search engine search on him, you'll find it. You can look at the PDF. It's for free online. Now, Bertrand Russell explains his refusal to accept Christ can be summarized under two headings. The first is that he doesn't believe, he has to to show why he doesn't believe that God exists at all. And by the way, for those of you who have been coming on Wednesday nights, he gives his own debunking of each of the classical proofs for God's existence. And you can read through them. It'll be a really interesting little homework assignment for you to 
uh, piggyback with, and you'll see an atheist interacting with the cosmological argument, the teleological argument. You'll see all of that happening, happening there. That's what he does in the first part of his paper. But the second part of his paper, for which he further argues why he's not a Christian, is because he does not think that Christ was the best and wisest of men. Matter of fact, he said, I think he had a high degree of morality, but I can think of better men than Jesus. That was Bertrand Russell's part of his thesis. Now, to accomplish that second aim, what you'll find is that Bertrand Russell has one major beef with Jesus. And the one major one is that Jesus speaks about hell at all. He takes great exception with a man who talks about eternal judgment. He points out several plain occasions which Jesus straightforwardly warns about a coming judgment. And he says, as a result of that alone, Jesus must be kicked down from a notch of high morality. Now, Russell then goes on to say, I have a couple of other matters of lesser importance I'd also like to throw in here as part of the argument. It's kind of like, here's some extra, you know, this is a cherry on top kind of thing. And of the couple of things that he mentions, he mentions among them these. He objects to Jesus' casting out of the demons, legion, into the swine at Gadarene, because after that, the pigs go over the cliff to their death. And he says, what a waste of the pigs. How uncompassionate of Jesus to cast these demons into pigs. He could have just sent them away, off into nowhere. But instead, he cast them into these swine. He says, being omnipotent, couldn't Jesus just have cast the devil away instead of putting them into the pigs? So he takes exception with that. And then after having said this, he says this, quote, Then there is the curious story of the fig tree, which has always rather puzzled me. This is a very curious story because it was not the right time of year for figs. And you really couldn't blame the tree. I cannot myself feel that either in the matter of wisdom or in the matter of virtue, Christ stands quite as high as some other people known to history. I think I should put Buddha and Socrates above him in these respects. By the way, other scholars have argued that Jesus' action here against the tree is a case of mismanaged power. Again, if Jesus is omniscient, they argue, why doesn't he just by a miraculous act cause things to grow? I mean, he caused bread and fish to multiply. He can obviously create bread and fish. Certainly, Jesus could create figs and have them come out from this tree that didn't have any fruit. Why doesn't he do that? What is Jesus up to here? Well, there's a whole lot that Bertrand Russell doesn't get. He doesn't understand what Jesus is doing. He is blinded. He is ignorant. Professing to be wise, he has become a fool. What was behind this miracle? Well, first of all, I want to say this before I engage in a little bit of counter-dialogue with Bertrand Russell. I think it's appropriate that I first of all say that far be it from me to presume that I have to defend Jesus' actions. Jesus does not need me to defend him. Ultimately, I can answer this way. Does the potter have a right over the clay to do with it as he pleases? Can he not mold it into this or that? Can he scrap it? Can he start over? Can he throw it away and be done with it? The pigs in the fig tree 
are all rightly Jesus' property. Just as the donkey which he borrowed on the previous day, and through him all things have come into being, nothing that's come into being has come into being apart from him. Not only are all things created by him and through him, but all things are for him. In other words, Jesus can do what he pleases with that which is his own. And far be it from us to sit in judgment over his wise use of the things that he has made. To call the tree innocent or blameless, and then simultaneously to call the tree's creator capricious, is to call evil good and good evil. However, I do not believe this to be merely a case of personal rage and spite against a tree. Although I have no problem with Jesus uprooting any tree he wants and destroying it or cursing any tree or anything. It's up to him. He can do what he pleases. I don't think that's what's going on here at all. Jesus was making use of the tree and the curse that he pronounced against it to communicate something far more important. The tree was to be an object illustration by which Jesus was further warning people regarding a coming judgment. In this, Jesus is following the practice of so many Old Testament prophets. How often do we see prophets in the Old Testament doing strange enactments? You say, why all of the fantastical enactment? Why not just say it plainly? Because there's something indelible that etched on people's minds when they're given something like that. There's just something about holding a yoke on your back and then talking about bondage that just seems to communicate something very vibrantly. Here, Jesus is giving an illustration that people might learn from. We'll look at the withering of the tree in a latter sermon. Note that Matthew immediately records the withering of the tree. Mark explains that it's not until the next day that the disciples notice that the tree has withered. And we're going to follow Mark's explanation and save the further details of the actual withered tree and the discussion that follows upon that in coming, the coming sermon. But I think the fact that Mark sandwiches in the middle of this pronouncement of cursing on the tree and the actual tree now dead, in between that, we have the story of Jesus cleansing the temple. There's something about this fig tree that's supposed to picture something about what's there in the middle. Something about the cleansing of the temple points to the purpose of Jesus' miracle here. You see, the fig tree's barrenness would be exposed. It would come under judgment and it would wither because apart from fruitfulness, the only good the tree had was kindling. Jesus was intending for this to be a lesson that would resound with Israel that their lack of fruitfulness and their rejection of their Messiah would mean impending judgment. Think about it. How often in the Old Testament do we have Israel likened unto plants or vines? Israel was a choice plant. It had been given every advantage. It had been granted blessings and care from God. It was like this lone fig tree out in the wilderness, all green, fitted with every advantage, given light and knowledge and divine privileges. But all of those privileges, all of those blessings did not result in fruitfulness in the nation of Israel. It didn't lead them to nourish the nations. And it didn't lead them to receive their Savior when He came. And so, their leafiness would no longer be permitted to cover up their shame. 
No longer would they be able to hide behind a coat of leaves their fruitlessness. Judgment must come. And in this moment, we recognize that we all actually identify with that scenario, don't we? All of us, being in Adam, know what it is to hide and to try to cover over our shame and our lack of fruitfulness. We all know what it is to put together, sew fig leaves together, to try to cover our shame, our nakedness, our fruitlessness. We try to go around and cover as if camouflaged. We hope that we'll trick others. and We hope that we'll deceive the Lord into believing that we have everything together. But here Jesus pinpoints that our disguise will be uncovered. You see, because apart from Christ, we have no hope of being fruitful and fulfilling the purpose for which God created us. Apart from Christ, we can only be sure of coming judgment. Jesus will say, apart from the vine, you cannot bear fruit. Apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. And so it's also true, not of only individual believers, but of conglomerations of believers, the church. It's possible, just as Israel did, for any church today to become obsessed with greenery and not fruit. It's very easy for us to become obsessed with things that are external to the grand purposes of God. Through a slightly different analogy, two authors, Colin Marshall and Tony Payne, made a similar point in their book entitled The Trellis and the Vine. Their analogy for church work involved the question as to whether or not we're spending time tending to the vine or tending to the trellis. The point that they make is that a trellis is useful to any vine. But there's a problem if all of our attention goes to the trellis and we have this beautiful, ornate trellis with no vine growing upon it. Because you can have all the trellis you want, but you're not going to get any fruit from the trellis. The trellis might be helpful and nurturing and caring for the vine, but we cannot forget the vine itself. And so I've altered a couple of their points of applications and formed ten questions from some of their applications, which I think get at some of this heart issue and is a good checkup for us as a church. Have we fallen victim to caring more about greenery than the fruit? Here's ten questions. Ponder these. Think about them. Write answers to them in your notes. Are we more concerned with external appearance than internal heart? What's our concern? Is it external or internal? What is our primary focus? Is it external or internal? A lot of these are just kind of now flushing that out. Are we running programs or building people? Are we running programs or are we building people? Do we run events or train and love people? Do we use people or do we grow and edify and encourage people? Do we serve from hearts of loving gratitude or do we serve from begrudging annoyance? Do we fill gaps with warm bodies or train workers for Christian ministry? Is our attention consumed with the urgent and therefore neglect the important? Are we managing or ministering? Do we seek church growth or gospel growth? Do we delight ourselves in decreasing 
that Jesus Christ might increase. You see, the religious leaders in Jesus' day were so consumed with the trellis. They were so consumed with the greenery that they completely forgot that they were completely barren. They had absolutely no fruit. And when Jesus came looking for it and didn't find it, judgment would be soon to follow. You see, Jesus' actions with the leafy, barren tree would set the perfect stage for what happened next on Jesus' itinerary this day. He enters into Jerusalem, into the temple, which was the crowning jewel of Jerusalem. It was one of the most beautiful buildings in the ancient world. Herod had just spent vast amounts of money remodeling it. But as we can see here together, the temple was in need of further renovation. That brings me to the second point. Temple renovation. Temple renovation. I'll summarize this with a couple of sub-points. What's involved in Jesus' spring cleaning on this day? Well, it begins with the profane being shown the exit. The profane being shown the exit. By profane, I don't mean profanity. Again, those of you here on Wednesday nights, we just got into a discussion of the holiness of God. And we talked about the difference between the holy and the profane. Profane just means common, not set aside for God's purposes, just common. And the common things must leave from the temple. You see, on the previous day, by the time that Jesus had come in on his triumphal entry, we're told that he came into the temple and he looked around at everything and then left. It's as if we get the picture that Jesus is kind of scoping out, surveying the temple, and getting ready for an itinerary that's going to happen the next day. Presumably, it was so late that the merchants had already left the temple. They already closed shop for the day. But now Jesus comes in early in the morning because he had a meeting with those who were setting up shop in the temple courts. There's certainly nothing wrong with the fact that businesses proceeded, that they helped facilitate God's people in bringing acts of worship and sacrifice to the temple. Imagine if you were traveling some great distance, you can imagine how much simpler it would be than instead of carrying with you goats or lambs or pigeons or doves to just bring some money with you. So that way when you got to Jerusalem, you just paid somebody who had the animals and then you brought the animals with you in for sacrifice. Also, if you're living in some outlying region, it would be super helpful to have some money changers available so that way you could insert your money into the, the temple treasury and it be accepted. These businesses, are, there's nothing inherently wrong with them. There's nothing wrong specifically with them except for the placement of them. And we could also say the way in which they were going about their activity as well. Jesus' anger here is aroused by the fact that this profane thing, this common thing of buying and selling was happening in the temple. It was not the place for this activity. Can you imagine what a distraction this must have been to those who were coming to the temple to pray? All of this business, or maybe it was a busyness, would change the atmosphere of the place that was designed to be a place of worship and adoration of the Lord. This was to be a place set aside for a specific purpose. To facilitate 
God's people and coming to Him and offering prayers and worship unto Him. So Jesus comes in, sees all the money changers, sees the dove sellers' benches, and He overturns them and kicks the buyers and sellers out of the temple. Jesus doesn't say to them, stop buying and selling. He says, get out of the temple. And He pushes them out. Jesus even stops those who are carrying merchandise across the temple court. Again, the picture here is, you know, it's maybe a thing of convenience. The temple court that we're talking about was about 35 acres large. Okay, the outer court of the temple, 35 acres. So if you were on one side of the temple, it might be a shortcut to just shortcut through the temple. And Jesus says, you're not going to use the temple as a shortcut. You're not going to bring your merchandise even through the temple. J.C. Ryle comments, Resistance, there was none. For men knew that he was right. Objection, there was none. For all felt that he was only reforming a notorious abuse which had been basely permitted for the sake of gain. Ever wondered, how is it possible that Jesus, this one guy, comes into the temple, is able to clear all this out? Why does anybody stop him? Perhaps it's because the consciences of these very men were smote, and they knew that they were in the wrong, and they had to go. This is not the first time that Jesus cleans house either, is it? This, this account is recorded in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But the first temple cleansing is recorded in John. About three years before this, Jesus had done the exact same thing, turning over the tables, kicking them out of the temple. And I really wonder, did that first temple cleansing have any impact? How long did it last? Did it last for a day? Did it last for a year? We don't know. But all we do know is three years later, they're back in there doing what they had done before. See the need for ongoing vigilance with things like this? You don't just handle it once. Parents, you just handle sinning your kids once and it's all over with? Has God only had to handle you in your sin once and it was all over with? We see ongoing vigilance required and we see Jesus coming back to the temple finding the exact same problem that he cleared out three years prior to this occasion. We can be sure that these Businesses wouldn't have been able to do what they had been doing apart from the support of the religious leaders. They couldn't be in the temple if the leaders of the temple weren't permitting it. And what seems to be indicated from Jesus' statement here about this den of robbers is either it's just a statement about the extortion that those sellers are engaging in, or it could be a further indictment on the religious leaders who might have set up some sort of financial arrangement with these workers and said, we get some sort of cut off of the deal as well. We don't know for sure, but there's some injustice going on alongside of it. He's not just concerned about the sheer buying and selling of goods, but the manner in which it's being done. David Gooding explains, instead of being priestly intermediaries to help men find worship and be blessed by God, the religious leaders have become middlemen, turning their priesthood into a commercial monopoly in order to make profit, financial profit out of man's quest for God. Thus they robbed men, for it is difficult to experience the grace of God and the free gift of His salvation through a services of men bent on making money out of one's spiritual need. can't help but think about the time of the Protestant Reformation and one of the big things that Martin Luther is speaking out against is the sale of indulgences. The Roman Catholic Church had gotten involved in selling viewing of 
relics in order for people's time in purgatory to be reduced. They played upon the fears and ignorance of people and set it under a God disguise that they were doing something profitable or helpful towards their spiritual well-being. And in reality, you can't buy forgiveness that way. There is a serious problem when those who are given a, to direct people's attention to God are themselves so focused on getting money, it distorts everything else. And we've seen it in our present day too, haven't we? How many supposed televangelists have gone down as a result of money-making schemes, playing off of people's fears and ignorances? This sacred space, which should have been filled with the prayers of the devout, reverent worshippers, have been filled with goods and supplies, haggling over prices, and some sort of extortion. God's house, Jesus says, to refer to as a house of prayer, was instead a cave filled with thieves. Jesus exclaims, Has it not been written that my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a cave of robbers? Now that statement is actually the combination of two prophets. The first part of it comes from Isaiah 56. We had this read this morning. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Isaiah speaks of a day in which the whole world will come and offer sincere worship to the one and only God. He speaks of two groups in particular, eunuchs and foreigners, who were formerly barred access to the temple. But now they're spoken of as being brought in to the temple. What makes this text especially fitting is the very, very area where this market would have been set up. It would have been set in the court of the Gentiles, the outer court of the temple. Now remember, you had a couple of different divisions within the temple. You had the outer court where everyone was welcome. Then you had the court of the Jews where Jewish women were allowed. And then you had the court of the men in which the Jewish women weren't even allowed to go into. And then you had the holy place where the priest could only go into. And then you had the Holy of Holies where the high priest went on the Day of Atonement every year. So we have these divisions within the temple. So where is this big bazaar going on? On the court of the Gentiles. This is what makes this, this quotation so interesting. Jesus says, My house, that's also interesting, My house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Where are the nations going to come when they come to the temple? There, at that time, there, to this outer court. And what was that outer court filled with? Merchandising. What kind of image do you think that portrayed to the world? What do you think they, what idea do you think the world got regarding what God was all about? Have you ever yourself found yourself righteously indignant when you've seen people taking the name of Christ and using it as a tactic to get money? What does the world think when that happens? They think this is all a sham. Some effort to deceive people and get their money. You see, the very place which should have the image of prayer, communion with God, Jesus is saying, you've completely transformed that image. Instead of this place being filled with prayer, it's filled with robbers. People seeking a prophet. Not even being honest about it. 
You see, the Jews should see the court of the Gentiles as a unique privilege to invite those outside of Israel to come and seek the one true God. But instead, the Jews have become so insular and so exclusive towards the nations that they didn't even think that that place had any better use than to set up a bazaar there. What would you think if you were part of a group in our congregation that was relegated to the foyer? You are not allowed to come into the sanctuary. Maybe because of your socioeconomic status, we've determined you will now sit in the foyer. Maybe because of your gender. Maybe because of your height. Pick up whatever quality you want. You are now in the foyer. You will not come into this place. You will stay in the foyer during a time of worship. And now let's just say that we decided that a good course of action would be for us to start selling all kinds of concessions in the foyer. So we'll sell concessions and we'll start hawking trinkets, you know, get a lot of Jesus junk flowing through there, testaments and all the rest, you know, and get, get all of that going through there. So you're hearing the sound of haggling and price negotiation. And don't, don't forget, we've got to have some things there that emit smells and uh, make sounds because certainly animals did a whole lot of that. And not only that, you just have this. While you're sitting there in the foyer... How worshipful does that environment feel? How easy would it be to commune with God in a scenario where all you hear is the hubbub of deals being done? Would such an atmosphere be conducive to prayer and worship? Jesus then combines to this, Jeremiah 7.11, Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares the Lord. Jesus quotes from Jeremiah because he believes that the rebuke that Jeremiah had for Israel back then was equally applicable to his own day. A den of robbers. What's that all about? Well, if you were within a thievery club... What do you do after you've done all of your thievery? You go and commiserate. And where do you commiserate? With a bunch of other thieves. And you hide out in your den. And you determine what's the next thing we're going to do. When Jeremiah uttered this, it was shortly before coming destruction and deportation. And Jeremiah announces this to God's people saying, you think that you're safe because you cover it over with religiosity. But God sees your hearts. And again, this is what religious leaders were doing. They felt that they could just cover over their wickedness through religious formalism. And so as a result, Jesus would rather stop the rituals and the religious activity altogether than allow the sham and the facade to continue. So he casts all of that stuff right out of the temple You see, it's not merely the commercialization, but also the unjust commercialization that was going on in this and in all places in the temple. In the temple. What reverence was there for the Lord? What consideration of His holiness was going on? A third prophet, which Jesus doesn't even mention here, nor any of the Gospel writers, is interesting. We find a literal fulfillment of Zechariah 14.21, which says... And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. The analogy is so clear. Jesus bemoans not only the city of Jerusalem, 
but the place that stood with the singular purpose to give glory to God and to offer up a fragrant aroma unto Him. If anywhere there should have been a place of fruitfulness, it should have been here. But instead, we find barrenness. Think of all of the outward forms and mantras associated with the traditions of the temple, and yet this people's worship of God had been reduced to mantras and words memorized by rote. Their hearts were very far from God, and thus their worship was void of meaning and value. They tried to cover over their lack with ceremony, but the ceremony couldn't save them. There were plenty of leaves, but no fruit. There was much activity, but no sincerity, no faith, no love, no truth. And you see, the danger is this, is that once the heart is removed from worship, then all sorts of appalling behavior become acceptable. All sorts of appalling behavior becomes acceptable. When our focus turns away from the one true God and from fidelity to His Word, if we just pay God's Word lip service, then every sort of atrocity can occur. You see, here's the danger with the church growth modeling that's being done in our own day. I'm not here to cast judgments on church bookstores and selling of stuff. It's not the selling of some books or CDs or coffee in the foyer of a church that's inherently evil. It's not necessarily multi-purpose rooms used for worship services are sinful. We know that the shadow of the temple was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. The ultimate temple of God is Christ. And in Him we meet and are granted access to God our Father. I'm not trying to say that any modern sanctuary is supposed to be now the temple. We know that Jesus is the ultimate temple and we're all being fitted together as stones into a temple where He's the chief cornerstone. The temple of God is wherever the Holy Spirit dwells. My concern here is not to try to make a one-to-one correlation between the temple then and our church sanctuary or our church or any other church here today. But, the concern that must drive our decisions in corporate worship is whether the things we do at a time and in a space that's given for the purpose of worshiping God encourages or discourages people from meeting with the Lord. We've all heard, or perhaps even some of us have been a part of, churches in which motorcycles are driven down aisles, or Elvis impersonators take to the platform, where secular music is played to draw a crowd. The problem isn't with the motorcycles, nor the Elvis impersonators, I don't know why you'd want to, nor the secular music. The question we must answer is how has our corporate time of worship contributed to people's view of the greatness and grandeur of God? What do they think about God as a result of what we've done when we gather together as God's people? Has our corporate worship time served to deepen their appreciation of the holiness of God? In our meeting together, is it truly a time of prayer? Are people led to think rightly and to respond appropriately to the Lord? You see... All of the elements that go into any particular worship service, there can be a whole lot of variation there. We have to be discerning and ask, is Jesus continually present in and through all that's happening? Are people being drawn to the grandeur, the holiness, the greatness of God? Are they being humbled before Him? Do they sense His majesty? Yes, this. 
Is it something other? Or is it just all common? Is it just like any other day? There's a problem that can exist in churches if their desire is just to appear and feel like everywhere else you are. We're not trying to be like everyone else. What we desire to do is to worship and respond in prayer and worship and adoration to a God who is holy. And a God who has been gracious and loving by sending His Son to die for us. Even today, when unbelievers look around, they expect when they come to a church that they're going to learn something about God, something true about God. You see, the church is to be a hospital for sinners. It's a place where those dead in their sins can hear the Gospel and by a work of the Holy Spirit be regenerated, be granted faith and repentance, trust in Jesus. This is why it's so disheartening when we see other Gospels being presented to people which really cannot save. The warning to us as a church is that we not get tied up in other efforts, even if they're good ones, if they divert us from the attention of our mission to glorify God by preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. You see, it's the good news that God utilizes by the work of the Holy Spirit to save lost souls. It's also the good news that God utilizes by the Holy Spirit to sanctify the saved. We're told it's by gazing upon the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ, that we can lay aside the sin that so easily entangles us and run the race that's set before us. What we all need is a better view of Jesus. Nothing must be allowed to divert our attention away from the sovereignty of God, the supremacy of Jesus Christ, the solace of the Holy Spirit, and the sufficiency of Scripture. See, Jesus' action here on this day to cleanse the temple, to clean it out, was just making preparation for the teaching that he was about to engage in. Luke tells us that following the temple cleansing, Jesus began teaching daily in the temple. He says, my house will be a house of prayer. And obviously, not only a house of prayer, but a house of teaching, of preaching. And we can be sure that wherever there's prayer and preaching and teaching, there's also going to be praise. Because even it's on the lips of the children there. They're singing Hosanna to the Son of David. Remember that Jesus has already prophesied the eventual destruction of the temple. But that's not ultimately concerning because it could never truly be the full and final dwelling place of God. Remember Solomon himself said this. I mean, what a downer at the, you know, it seemed like such a downer at the inauguration of the temple. There, Solomon there, dedicating the temple they built. What do we see coming from his lips? But will God indeed dwell on the earth? The old heaven and the highest heaven can't contain you. How much less this house which we built. <laughs> yeah. You see that as a, the ribbon cutting ceremony, you know? This is, this is not, this is not capable. We can't really do what we wanted to do. I mean, how I many feel really good about that? But Solomon understands so deeply the greatness of God. No building could ever contain him. It was all a shadow to point forward to a coming reality. Jesus would be the temple that the Old Testament pointed toward. This is why Jesus can say, tear down this temple and three days later, I'll build it back. I'll rise again. So the profane have to be shown the exit. 
Two other things quickly. The excluded are granted an entrance. The profane exit. The excluded enter. So the religious leaders are there. They're bent on Jesus' destruction, no matter what the cost. This is just solidifying their stance. We've got to get rid of this Jesus. But what's staying their hands, the people are hanging on his every word. They see it. They become more and more jealous. They're angry. The crowds are enraptured by the truth that Jesus is communicating. They're awestruck by his power to heal. And with the exodus of the merchants, as they clean up their shops and travel out from the temple... Matthew tells us, of all the Gospel writers, that there's a new group of people who enter into the temple. And it's such a, just a quick note that you'd almost miss it, but it's really important. Who enters into the temple? The lame and the blind. And they enter into the temple. They enter into the temple. As Jesus kicks the money changers and merchants out, he welcomes in the blind and the lame. Some commentators point out the fascinating element of this act, recorded only by Matthew, is found when we consider the original capturing of Jerusalem. 2 Samuel chapter 5, when Jerusalem first became David's city. David was coming up against Jerusalem. The people, the Jebusites in Jerusalem, were so not afraid of David and his approaching people, they taunted David and said, We have posted on our walls the blind and lame. We're not scared of you, is what they're saying. The plan is devised. They come up through the well, the water source, infiltrate the city, open the doors, and David conquers Jerusalem. David says this after those events. 2 Samuel 5.8 The blind or the lame shall not come into the house. When David says this, it's probably because he was taunted by the blind and lame. So he says, I don't want to see them. They're not going to come into the house. But now here we find Jesus, David's greater son, not only welcoming but healing the blind and the lame in the house, in the temple. The people who were kept out are now welcomed in. The people who had been scorned are now healed. You see, the dead formalism and the horrendous distraction is replaced with real ministry. Jesus doesn't just clear out the temple. He clears out the distractions and then brings in those in need. Third thing. The adversaries are silenced by children. We've already mentioned the religious leaders are not happy about what's going on. They're still breathing murderous threats towards Jesus. And now all of a sudden they hear the children sing out, Hosanna to the Son of David! Now remember, these statements were being made in this triumphal entry, but now Jesus is in the temple. And the children are singing this. And it's just too much for the chief priests and scribes. They cannot contain themselves. They have to cry out against this. Isn't it such a tragedy that the same, the very people who wouldn't cry out against the merchant's bazaar in the temple, become inflamed when they hear children singing praises to Jesus. They come up to Jesus. Do you hear what they're saying? I mean, the obvious implication here is quiet them up. It's almost as if they were taking a page out of the book of the Pharisees during the triumphal entry when they said, do you hear what these people are saying? And Jesus says, well, if I silence them, what's going to happen? The rocks are going to cry out. 
Well, here Jesus responds to the chief priests and scribes. I always, whenever Jesus does this, make note of this. He, this isn't the only occasion he does. But he not only responds to them with scripture, but he prefaces it with this statement. Have you never read that? I mean, that's, that's purposeful from our Lord. He's talking to the scriptural scholastics, right? These are the people that supposedly knew the word of God backward and forward. And Jesus says, haven't you ever read? Aren't you familiar with the text? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you've prepared praise. Jesus is by no means going to stop the songs of the children because what they're saying and singing is true. He's astonished at the denseness of these supposed scholars. God is bringing to pass another fulfillment of Psalm 8. We had that read also this morning. The psalm is a beautiful psalm. It begins and ends with praise to the majesty of God's name. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. In light of all that God has made, that psalm talks about how man feels so small. Like it's in the work of your hands, fingers, the sun, moon, stars. What is man that you're mindful of him? It's incredible to think that the creator of the universe thinks about puny man. Yet his love for man is seen in the place he was given in the created order, made lower than God. And the angels but given dominion over the animals, birds, and fish that God has made. And God's care is also seen in the way in which He provides for a child, not only in the womb, but in providing nourishment through his or her mother's milk. And in that context, we're told that each child lifts up praise to the loving care of God. He's prepared praise for Himself from nursing babies. This is fascinating. Jesus says, haven't you read that? Even nursing babies praise God. What's the implication? These children are doing what they've been called to do. They're praising me. The implication is, for I am God. God's love is seen even more plainly in the giving of His own Son, Jesus Christ who as the second Adam, the perfect man, would be made lower than the angels temporarily, that he might be given the name above every name and be crowned with glory and majesty and reign over everything. And we're told here, And this Lord, Yahweh, our Lord, Adonai, whose name is majestic in all the earth and whose splendor is above the heavens, chose to silence the voice of his critics and enemies and adversaries by the seeing of infants and babies. Jesus argues to those religious leaders, this is not at all unlike God. This is how God's been doing things forever. He's been putting to shame his enemies, a.k.a. you, by the singing of little children. What king would find that the way in which he would vindicate himself by his enemies? Listen to what these little babies are saying about me. No, they'd match, oh, look at this popular person, that popular person, this. God so flips this on its head. He takes those who are considered wise and makes them fools by the praise of children. 
Rather than allow his son Jesus to proceed without witness, God will open the mouth of children and babies and even stones if it's required to give praise to his son. As a sort of bookend to Jesus' ministry, we see Jesus cleansing the temple as he did at first. He does it at the beginning of his ministry, now he does it here at the end. And as his father's son, we're told that zeal for his father's house consumed him. He had a driving concern for the salvation of the lost, absolutely. And a never-ending zeal that his father's will be done, and that his father be glorified and worshipped. As king and high priest, Jesus had the authority and power to cleanse that which others had corrupted. You see, the fig tree would serve as a tangible object lesson. A warning that coming disaster was soon there if God's people would not repent and return to the Lord. So rather than being appalled by the cursing of the fig tree, Bertrand Russell, we ought to be thankful that Jesus would bring judgment against a tree to teach us to consider our own souls. Jesus brings a curse upon a tree that we might contemplate our position before a holy God. He curses the tree that we might be awakened to the righteous judgment of God, that we might repent and believe and be saved from the wrath to come. But Jesus is so great that He wouldn't stop at just providing an object illustration from a tree. He would place Himself upon a tree on which the curse would fall. He would die as a substitutionary sacrifice that sinners might be saved from the coming wrath. Jesus Himself, in the purest sense, is the temple of God. For He is God in the flesh. And He would ascend a tree upon which the curse of God would fall with the greatest fury. And when Jesus endured and rose victorious over the curse of the tree, the temple of God would be renovated. Breaking down the wall of separation between Jews and Gentiles, by His blood, Jesus purchased for God's own possession a people, making even those who were once outside the covenants and promises now partakers of the promises of God. His sacrifice meant the tearing of the veil from top to bottom in the Holy of Holies. Because the shadows must give way to the substance to which they pointed forward to. Jesus is the ultimate prophet and high priest and king. was also the truest temple and the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world so we could be saved and granted eternal life. Talk to Him and be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we've taken a look at a tree and a temple. There are so many lessons to, to learn from this. But I pray the one that we do not lose track of, that Jesus would lay down His life upon the tree, would take the curse on our behalf that we might be blessed. Lord, we recognize You as You are, holy and great and good, 
gracious, long-suffering, merciful, loving. We thank You for the wonder of the Gospel and the work that You are performing in our hearts. I pray even in these still moments, You would draw even perhaps even one in this room right now to salvation. You grant them eyes to see the glory of Jesus. You give them eyes to see their own sinfulness, their barrenness, their need to be connected to the vine, Jesus Christ, that they might bear fruit. Lord, thank You for Your purpose being accomplished. May be glorified in this place, in Your church all over the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.